You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Yep, it's Friday afternoon, as I just said, and on a Friday Rave, Community Radio 3CR. Well, it's actually Thursday afternoon. With me being in Sydney, I completely forgot that you mob would be on holiday today. And, you know, as if, how hard is it, I guess, to notice the difference if there is any down there with the lockdown and the public holiday? I don't know what's going on, mate. And, you know, apart from that, apart from anything else, as a pie supporter, the season finished for me a long time ago. So anyway, as regular listeners would know, last week I fell into the trap of putting a show up early Although we did have an excellent show with Clinton Fernandez talking about the um, the documents he managed to get released from the National Archives, showing the about you know about the Australian government's complicity in assisting the US to get rid of um, Salvador Allende um, and installing the the Pinochet regime. So it was a great show, but because I put it up on Wednesday night. Um, I missed out on the Thursday morning announcement of AUKUS. Um, so I just managed to do a quick voiceover at the start of it saying I was going to cover it this week. And then I was going to do the show this Friday, which it's actually Thursday here, and have all the most current info coming out of Morrison's visit to Washington this week, but that'll have to wait. Now, I am going to give a bit of a yarn about AUKUS. No, I don't mean the god of the underworld but the new, well, sort of new, military alliance, and I will. But bugger me if I'm not going to also have a bit of a yarn, a bit of a crack, I guess, at the recent developments with protests in Melbourne. So, on with the show. I was talking to my daughter this morning, who's down Torquay Way, and we're having a yarn about the protests and the police response to them, of course. And the media's response and the government's response and the left response and the union's response and everyone's bloody response, her response, my response, her mate's response. And she was telling me about some young folks, well, young folks about her own age, um, down that she met down Torquay who were on their way in to the rally earlier this week. Um, she tried to convince them not to, of course, but they went anyway and... Um, She'll give me a rundown about um, what they say when they get back. Now, I want to make one thing clear. And I made it clear to her, and she understood that. These protests are being organised by fascists. And I pause there to give some of you regular listeners the opportunity of accusing me of changing my tune. After all, I've said on this show as recently as a few weeks ago when I was talking Anthony Snowden to Box 4 and elsewhere that the anti-lockdown protests were not run by fascists. But they are. So what's happened? Have I changed my mind? Not at all. The nature of the protests have evolved in exactly the way 
I predicted they would. And you're welcome to go back and listen to the podcast from that show. Um, if, if you wish, it's on the 3CR homepage, 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. In the absence of any unified or even general left critique of the government's measures, the fash have filled the vacuum. It was always going to happen. What we saw, are seeing this week, is not entirely new, but a new phase in protests like we saw in the US with the Trumpsters, for exactly the same reason. For exactly the same reason people are coming out in support of some of these right-wing turds is why they come out in support of Trump. Because the left were doing nothing. And not only that, but the soft left, the Democrats, your Hillary Clintons, your Obamas, are saying things like, America's already great, and that Trump supporters were deplorable, driving people to the right. And that's happening here as well. Look, the government's response to COVID pandemic has been abysmal, state and federal. Um, look, well, it's not abysmal. If you understand, if you stop for a minute and understand that the role, well, if you think, as the line is, that the government is there representative of the people in the democracy to do the best good for the most people, blah, 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 blippity blah, then, yeah, it's been abysmal. If you know, and I don't mean know in some intellectual sort of understanding, but if you viscerally know that the government is there for no other reason than to manage the economy and the society on behalf of the few, without really giving a shit about the rest of us, except to keep us healthy and alive as not to not revolt, if you understand that, then you'll see that the government, state and federal, their response has been exactly spot on with what they need to do. The only difference between the state and the federal has been, A, in the areas of society that they, um, that they organise, and, you know, and B, slightly different attitudes between the, you know, the hard right of the ruling party and the soft right of the opposition. Because while the pandemic is real, governments, societies reacted to it with their new automatic response, security. And by that, I mean more money and resources have been spent on a security response to the pandemic than a social response or a health response. While the numbers of COVID deaths is questionable, you know, just as an aside, the inclusion of very elderly and people with extreme comorbidities morbidities, that, you know, and I don't mean to be harsh here, just matters of life and death, a lot of the people who've died, the elderly and the comorbidity people may have died anyway with flus or any other things that was coming along, but there is no doubt that many hundreds of people have died of this virus and this virus alone. Already it has killed more Australians than have died in all wars combined since the end of World War II. Let me say that again. It's killed more Australians than have died in all the wars put together since the end of World War II. This is a serious health issue. 
There is no doubt about it. But I don't buy into you believe every figure. I don't buy into you doubt every figure. You need to take nuanced approaches, and nuanced approaches are what is not happening. The government is responding with a heavy boot tactic. There's money to be spent. You can see the money's being spent, you know, money being spent. Yet, I do not see any infrastructure money being spent on hospitals, on quarantines, and a whole lot of, whole raft of other health initiatives. I don't see money being allocated, apart from a little bit in the first wave, to assist in the precariat workers who have lost the most and continue to lose. I do not see resources spent on equipping families to cope with the stresses of homeschooling. I don't see any assistance to large families living in houses or flats that were big enough when the adults are at work and the kids at school, but inadequate for the 24-7 occupation of everyone who lives there. I do not see public housing being made available to homeless people. I do not see early release programs for prisoners or those in juvie detention living in conditions and in any other situation would be considered to be a petri dish for the virus. I don't see additional allocations being given to Indigenous communities um, trying to struggle with the, with the COVID response when, because of a whole lot of other health issues, have got to be amongst the most at risk. What I do see is the introduction of laws which are unequally applied depending on your income and your postcode, like all laws, quite frankly. What I do see are the laws, more laws, and police in the street riding atop armoured vehicles with rifles at the ready. I see protesters shot in the back with beanbags while running away from the coppers. Whatever our personal views of the protests, surely this is unacceptable. We would hope that most people in mainstream society who may not support our views on a range of issues that we've protested about in the past together, you and I, folks, Medicare, nukes, anti-war, equality, we would hope that even the people who opposed us would not have stood for coppers shooting us in the back with bead bags, using pepper and gas, cap gas, as a, a foam, as a first response crowd control measure. We'd assume and we'd hope that those people who did not support our point of view also did not support the police, the state, using those weapons on us, particularly when we were running away from them. Now, these protests, which began, as I've said before, as misguided but nonetheless understandable outpourings of people's frustrations, have now become a tool of the right. There's no doubt about that. But what do I mean by right? Here's another issue. Do I actually mean the, um, the boneheads with swastika tats? Well, them too, but that's not who I mainly mean. What I really mean is the right wing. The ones, well, not quite the 1%, but the ones who were organising things on behalf of the 1%. Do you really believe that these protests have been totally directed without political influence 
by a mob of Nazis who notoriously misspelled the words on their own tattoos? Stop kidding me. Stop kidding yourselves. Do you think the attack on the CFMEU's office was spontaneous thought of some boneheads pissed off with the union leadership's line? If you think that, then you'd think that, the, you know, the, some environmentalist attacks on the, the CFMEU, what, 20 years ago, and were just because they wanted to, to save the trees. No, I'm not talking about some cliché dark conspiracy here with men smoking pipes in dark rooms, rubbing their hands together and sniggering in glee. But I am suggesting that the public figures of the ultra-right, people like Avi Yemeni and Harry McLean, don't work in isolation. They are tools of the real Nazis, the ones who don't throw bottles at officials, but work diligently towards the current goal of using the COVID pandemic to drive a wedge into every area of civil society and use that wedge to alienate and divide us, just like they always have. So then either during, if we ever get over this virus, if it ever returns to as normal or BC, as my son's mates are calling it, if we, you know, once we get through this, this virus, this pandemic rather, not the virus, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic are two different things, is being used to implement a range of social conditions that the right have tried to implement but been unsuccessful in implementing for some time. You know, I've said it before. You read things like um, Naomi Klein's piece in The Intercept a couple of years ago, what they call, not us, the right have called the Great Reset. Now, that term has been adopted by QAnon, so therefore, as soon as you say it, you sound like a right-wing conspiracy nut. No, they call it the right, the Great Reset getting more people to work from home, getting education online, a whole lot of of moves to social isolation. That is happening. And this tactic has been very successful. It's wedged us. It's divided us. In the distance, in the rush to distance themselves, I mean to say, from any association with the far right, the left and Labor Party and unions have been taken on the rhetoric, you know, that I'm old enough to remember the anti-communist Red Scare of the middle of the last century. As an example, let me give you an example of this. Do people gathered outside to CFMMEU office the other day were largely, there were some, but they were largely not trade unionists. Everyone knows that. But really, is that important? I've been at rallies in support of various campaigns that don't directly concern me. Not only union rallies that I haven't been a member of the union on, I've been at CFMEU rallies. I've been at student rallies. I left school at 14 and never been back. You know, I've still been at student rallies, gay rights rallies, women's rallies. Now, of course, these issues concern me, but it would be easy for the right to smear with the statement that I'm not really concerned with these issues because I'm at all of them. In fact, the Herald Scum did just that to Steve Jolly and fellow 3CR presenter Joe Toscano, Pamela Kerr and I about a dozen years back when we were involved in the Defend and Extend Medicare campaign. The allegation is that 
as we were involved in every issue from Palestine to the arms trade to anti-nukes and support of refugees, um, that I wasn't really in support of any of them, that I had some hidden agenda that we all had, was given as proof of the lack of our bona fides. The same was said about all of us, wasn't just me, in an article titled The Shadowy Men in Black, with no apologies to Pamela Kerr. Um, I see this same tactic being used against dicks like Bunnings Kent Karen, who was at the protest this week. She was at all the protests, but so she was at other protests. So what? Whatever I think of her, and it's not a lot, quite frankly. Whatever you think of her, and I think it's probably even less, is that the best is this the best way? to address these protests. I see people calling the protesters dumbasses because they don't understand science. I don't understand science, for Christ's sake. You know, there's a statement going around social media I've seen on quite a lot of posts. If you're not a scientist and you argue with a science about science, you're just stupid. Let me rephrase that for you and see if it works. If you're not an economist and argue with an economist about economics, you're just stupid. I would argue not. I'm a mili- I'm not a military planner, but I argue with military planners about military plans. And over the years, the fact that I don't have a degree in strategic studies has been used by military boffins to discount my opinions. Is that really what we're trying to say? That you don't have a right to question government mandates, government actions, unless you're trained in a particular discipline, in a way recognised by that government? I think not. Then you have the CFMMEU, obviously wedged by this and forced to take an either-or position. You know, they wedged by this because, you know, the powers that be had an interest. They see the wedges in society. They see everything happening. They say, right, now we can take Australia's most left-wing and militant union and good on them. I'm not attacking the CFMMEU here. I'm understanding them. Why would they attack them? Why would the 1% have it in their interests to form a wedge in the CFMMEU. They were forced to take an either-or position and they took the only position open to them, which they had they had to in order not to be seen as um, condoning the behaviour of the protests. But then they upped the ante the next day with a whole lot of patriotic bullshit about the protesters disrespecting the Shrine of Remembrance. Quite possibly, I might add, in response to the media posting photos of a ute with both CFMMEU and a right-wing Croatian sticker implying that the CFMEU was supporting the Astasa. And, you know, with a nod to the fact that their secretary, good man, militant, one of the secretary's best supporting his workers, John Setka, happens to be Croatian. It's wedge politics, and it's wedge politics driven for an ideological purpose. The Vic Trades Hall, or at least the secretary, I can't remember which, put up a post, a picture of a huge rally, a huge union rally, one of the biggest we had, with some sort of crocodile Dundee comment. You know, that's not a rally, this is a rally. Which, while understandably wants to sow the difference between us and them, also is having a crack at smaller, less organised rallies that Trades Hall does not support, like all the anti-fascist rallies in the past, for example, all the Palestinian Land Day events, all the Julian Assange support, 
Do we really want to go down this road of making decisions on who is and who is not a legitimate protester and what constitutes and what does not constitute a legitimate rally? Do we want to be the arbiters of that? Imagine if the if the anti-communist McCarthyist flatlanders made that had the right to make that decision 40, 50 years ago. Do we want to take that mantle? And I can hear people saying now, yeah, but we're not them. We're right. It's bullshit. Do we don't have that mantle. And do we want to take it against these rallies and the fact that these rallies, along with the, you know, the sometimes vocal and sometimes tacit support of the usual protest organisers, are being used by the state as an introduction to how they deal with rallies from now on, especially those not condoned by the managerial class of the movement. Do we really want a situation where in order to have a rally next year about, you know, the latest Israeli government atrocities in Palestine, for example, we need to have the support of either the Trades Hall or a broader union movement or even, you know, a number of groups on the left. What if a whole lot of grassroots people or even a small few, a dozen grassroots people wanted to have a rally outside the State Library or in the City Square on some issue that is not supported by the mainstream left? Not yet. None of the issues that are supported by the mainstream left were supported from day one. It was because of the unsupported rallies and because of the unsupported actions taken by small groups of disorganised protesters that, you know, the, the mainstream left came in behind them. Nothing more I can say on this. But we, and by, you know, we, I mean the left really need to stop the knee-jerk responses we've been jerking off with so far and work out a way past all this. The knuckleheads and knuckleheads, but they are a tool, not the perps. And many of the people who go along are going along because it's the only outlet they have. And not condemning the police, and by condemning the police, I don't mean a token condemnation of, you know, these knuckleheads, these protests are stupid, they're all retards, they're all deplorables, they're all all the other names that people are using. Oh, and the police, but the police shouldn't have done that. I mean actively opposing this police response. We need to realise and we need to remember who are the real Nazis here. listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Okie dokie. So Jacob went off on a rant again and only has a few minutes to rave about AUKUS. But that's all I need because I've decided that over the next few weeks I'm going to be talking with a whole range of people about AUKUS and all the implications of it. I hope to have Polly's academics and of course activists discussing the various aspects of this nightmare. And I'm also involved with a few people, renegade activist Bob Name 
and mainly in a couple of other projects. Firstly, putting together a thing we're calling the Raucus Antiochus Caucus. That'll take place on the 7th of October, featuring all types of people I just mentioned <laughs> in an online event, not just talking about things, not just explaining the different aspects of it, and letting you know what's really going on and the full implications of it, but organising a response. Basically, doing our little bit of what we can to rebuild what's left of the peace movement. And the other thing I'm um, involved in with Renegade Activists is we're working hard to upgrade our cyber presence, um, which will be based at renegadeactivists.org, and now we'll have heaps of info on it, hopefully by the end of this weekend. And a big up to um, Glenn and the crew over at Action Skills for helping us do that. But for now, a couple of important things I want to discuss immediately. And firstly, I'll go on to the submarines, but firstly, the question of why now? and what's behind this. And to this, primarily, I want to direct listeners to an earlier program, just two weeks ago, I made with Clinton Fernandez, on, well, it must have been the 10th of September. It's available on podcast at 3cr.org.au podcast, or by the end of the weekend at renegadeactivist.org. And on that show, we discussed the ANZUS Treaty of 51 and the reasons behind it. And blind me if it didn't happen immediately again. Now, just to summarise... There's a big temptation to assume that Australia is jumping to the US tune here, but that isn't the case any more than it was in 1951. The Australian government is doing what it has always done and looked after its own interests, and that is the interest of the Australian section of the Western capital, which, of course, supports larger Western capitalist agenda. That is, at the moment, of course, to stop or at least slow down China's economic rise through trade with um, pursuing infrastructure programs and deals and of the you know the Belt Road Initiative amongst other things, the Australian government's self-interest is twofold. In marketing Morrison's mind, he could do with a khaki election or at least leading a rather unprecedented event, and it was unprecedented, you know, for an Australian leader um, to be hosting the thing with Boris and Joe, but you know, even if Joe forgot his name, Joe probably forgets his own name from time to time, so that's no no real biggie. Um, from Morrison's management of behalf of Australian capital perspective, just like Menzies and Spender in 51, he needs Australia to be important to the United States. The biggest fear, though they will never say it out loud, but the biggest fear around dare I call them the mandarins, is not China, but it's Japan and South Korea. Not North Korea, South Korea. Not fear of invasion, not fear of attack, but fear that one of these two nations might become more important to the United States than we are. They're closer to China. They... Um, they maintain roots in and out of the South China Seas more clearly than they are. They have more, what's the word? They have a particular claim onto being the United States' first backstop, first friend, major ally in the region. That would relegate us, and that would be bad for Australia's end of capital. Menzies' approach to US for ANZUS just as they were about to sign a peace deal with Japan. Morrison approached the US, just as talks were beginning with Japan over inclusion of the Five Eyes, 
and both they and South Korea are talking subs, nuke subs. I don't think the US wanted to give us nuke subs, but they were doing, the Australian government were doing their job absolutely correctly by using what small leverage they had to insist on the US keeping Australia as its primary partner in the region. Whether we agree with the idea that what's best for capital is best for Australia is a totally different matter. It also helps Australia be the first ally of the centre of any capital for any number of reasons. You don't need me to tell you. But the subs are a matter of huge prestige for Australia. And um, we were always going to have, that's the second issue, the sexy issue, the nuclear subs, we were always going to have nuclear subs. The reason we chose the French design over the German one is that they were nuclear subs, but they were supposedly going to be fitted with diesel electric engines. I fully expected that before the first sub hit the water, they were going to have a change of heart and be fitted with nuclear reactors and be nuclear subs. I think the Americans, that's one thing we can give them in return, we say, we'll be, have your subs rather than the Frenchy subs. Now, to get that prestige of having nuclear subs, we needed the Americans and the British, and we had to offer the US something in return. And I'll go into that in coming weeks, things like we're going to increase troop deployments, quite probably have permanent US bases, and of course, as Peter Dutton alluded to by his canny use of the term different types of ordnance, keep new weapons here on Australian soil. That's all I've got time for today. I've been Jacob as always. It's been a Friday rave. I'll rave at you again next week. Check out renegadeactivists.org. Bye for now. <laughs>